If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. Hi, and I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched The Born Identity so that we can study sequences. This 2002 film was directed by Doug Lyman from a screenplay by Tony Gilroy and William Blake Heron. It's based on the 1980 novel of the same name by Robert Ludlum. Now, of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, and click the stars. It's that simple. Alrighty, Melanie, what do you have for the genre of The Born Identity? All right. Well, I think this one for the global genre is pretty simple, and I've got it as an action person against the state or conspiracy story. And then for the internal genre, I've had worldview revelation, but I'm not certain. So there is an internal shift in Jason because he doesn't want to be an assassin or work for Treadstone anymore. And that's the key to the ending of the film. But we actually don't see Bourne as an assassin except in a few minutes of flashback um, when he can't assassinate Wombosi. So we actually don't see Bourne before. We only see him after the accident. So that's what I'm going with. And I have this one as a thriller, (laughs) so we won't get into that argument this week. For the secondary genre, I agree with you. It's a worldview something or other. I didn't drill down too deeply uh, into the subgenre. You know, it's an education story or perhaps a revelation story. All right, Melanie, what can you tell us about the sequences in The Born Identity? Well, I chose um, The Born Identity as my first pick for this season because I suspected it would be a good example of how sequences are used to build tension and raise stakes right up to that climactic moment of the story. And I think it was a good choice if I do say so myself. (laughs) And I have read The Born Identity book and in this case it's uh, a situation where the movie is much better than the book. Um, Even though the movie was made back in 2002, uh, it has updated parts of the story, I think, that needed to be brought into the new century. So I would not necessarily recommend the book, but I would recommend the movie in this case. Uh, So last week I promised that I'd dive a little deeper into where sequences fit as a unit of story. So from smallest to largest, the units of story are First of all, a beat. And a beat is a moment of action and reaction between characters. And a series of beats make a scene. Now, not surprisingly, a scene is a series of beats, but organised so there is an inciting incident, progressive complications that push the characters to a crisis point where a decision must be made, a climax, which is where they make the decision, and then an outcome. There is a value change from the beginning and the ending of a scene. 
Now, a sequence is a number of scenes which build upon each other. The sequence has the same structure as a scene, so an inciting um, an inciting complication that results in a crisis decision point, a decision and a resolution. But the difference is that the sequence is focused on a single central action, and I'm going to use that phrase if, uh, quite a bit through this season. Now, the next unit of story is an act, and an act is a major division of drama which contains several sequences. The act is part of the larger structure of a story, so like we spoke about last week, one act, three acts, etc. And usually an act is broken down into beginning, middle and end. The number of acts in the middle seems to be where certain story structure theorists differ. And then finally, we have the big unit of story, which is a story. And that's a connected series of events told through words, written or spoken, imagery, still or moving, body language, performance, music, or any other form of communication. The biggest difference between a beat, scene, sequence, acts, and a story is the degree of change or the impact of a change on a character. The larger the unit of story, the larger the degree of change. In an action movie like The Bourne Identity, I think of it in terms of stakes and how close the stakes get to Jason being captured or killed. And as the story progresses, the threat of dying moves closer and closer to Jason. So we see it getting more real for him as the story progresses. And the net closes in around him until the only course of action left is to confront the antagonist, which in this case is Conklin, who's the chief operations officer for Treadstone. Now, a good way to see where the sequences climax in an action movie is by listening for the music. So when the music reaches a peak and then there's quiet, it's probably a really good sign that some form of climactic action has finished. And I checked out this theory in The Bourne Identity and it worked pretty well. And I've noticed that in other action or even thriller movies um, as I've watched that over the years. So, Valerie, did you notice the music when you were watching the film at all? Did it help you pick out anything? Honestly, no, I did not notice the music. And I think that is a good sign. I mean, I didn't consciously notice the music, but clearly, uh, you know, it was adding to my uh, enjoyment of the movie or my, my experience of the movie. And this is a really neat little trick that I had no clue about until you've just said it. So I'm going to, I'm going to pay closer attention to the music from here on in and in other movies that we do, because I want to test it and see, see how accurate it is. And, you know, with the Born Identity, I think it's a really good sign that I actually did not notice the music, because if I think back to some of the films we did in previous seasons, uh, particularly Dune is, is popping out in my mind, where in that movie, I didn't know what I was supposed to be feeling until the music told me. But the storytelling here in The Born Identity is much better than it is in Dune. So the music was enhancing the storytelling rather than doing the heavy lifting. So this that's a neat little trick. I can't wait to see if it actually works. 
Oh, yeah. And it's funny because I think you're right. In the born identity, you don't notice it unless you you are trying to pay attention to it. And what it does is it actually helps you build the feel the tension. Like the music, you're right, is, a, I think, part of a device to help you feel the tension in the story as it escalates. So, yeah, tell me how you go through the season when we're watching, you know, more action type of um, stories and see if you notice that. So, yeah, oh, good. Well, I'm glad that's helpful. <laughs> Tick one, yay. Okay, right. Now, on um, using the three-act, eight-sequence framework, I've identified the following sequences in The Born Identity. I've labelled each sequence based on the idea that a sequence is centred around a single central action. So I might not be right with these, but, you know, I've given it a, a, a good crack so you can see where the breaks in the film are. So Act 1, um, Sequence 1, so a man with no memory is found at sea and the actual duration of this sequence is about two weeks between when Bourne is picked up and then when he goes, um, goes ashore. So Sequence 2 is Bourne starts his search in Zurich. In Act 2, we've got the first half, which is Sequence 3, Bourne's Parisian apartment and Assassin 1. Sequence four is the car chase escape scene. And I've got in brackets in my notes that this is the question is, who is targeting me? So the second part of Act Two is sequence five and all roads lead to I'm an assassin is what I've got for that sequence. In sequence six, I've got there on the run. And then in notes, I've got assassin two shows up. And in the Act 3, which is the ending payoff, Sequence 7 is Confront Treadstone. And then Sequence 8 is It's Over. So it's really interesting to note that included in each sequence um, of the Bourne story are the Treadstone storylines. And Treadstone are the state and the force of antagonism, as I've mentioned before, run by Conklin and overseen by Abbott. As the movie progresses, the number of Treadstone scenes in each sequence increases until the Bourne storyline and the Treadstone storyline merge into one. Now, last week I mentioned that the writers of Tootsies had several threads they used to weave the sequences and create more and more tension as the story evolved. The writers of The Bourne Identity have done a similar thing. The threads that build the scenes in the sequences are the Treadstone with Conklin and Abbott, the three assassins, Wombosi, the romance with Marie, and also Nikki in the Paris office. So they're the threads that I picked out of the movie this week. So Tootsie used the threads to create more and more ridiculous situations for Michael to get out of, but in Bourne the build is different. The threads create tension by showing the audience more than the protagonist knows, and this is called dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is where the audience knows more than the protagonist. The Treadstone storyline is a really good example of how to use dramatic irony in an action story, and this is one of the easiest ways to create narrative drive. It creates tension because the audience is waiting for something to happen. In the Bourne identity, this makes sense because if we only had Bourne's side of the story, it would not make much sense or the beginning of the movie would not make much sense. 
So to introduce the Treadstone characters when Bourne encounters them or he becomes aware of them for the first time, would we'd be a bit lost and we'd have no context for who these people are. So we'd probably be very much in the same situation as Bourne. Born, the Born Identity is also a chase movie, so we need to see the chase happen even if Bourne doesn't know who is really chasing him or if he's being chased at all. So this also establishes our forces of antagonism in a movie, the combination of knowing more and seeing how the forces of antagonism want to move against Bourne amps up the tension in the viewer. The point is the dramatic irony not only provides the viewer with knowledge, that knowledge is relevant to the story and because we can't do anything about it, we can't warn Bourne, we can't stop anything from happening, then the tension rises in us as well and we are complicit even if we don't want to be. So that knowledge makes us complicit and that's, I think, a really good way to think about dramatic irony or to think about the situation where you could use dramatic irony in your stories. So here are the number of scenes in each sequence for the Treadstone storyline. So I've included in this the scenes with Nikki and the assassins in the Treadstone storyline because, well, they're slightly different branches. They, um, they, I think they have the same trunk. So in sequence one, there's one. In sequence two, there's four scenes. In act two, sequence three, um, we have three scenes, but they also start to get longer as we move into the middle build of the story or act two. In sequence four, we have four. Then in the second part of act two, sequence five has six and sequence six has six. And then, this is really interesting, in the ending payoff, so sequence seven is where the two storylines intersect and they, became, they become the same storyline. And then in sequence eight, the two storylines separate again. So Treadstone goes back to the US and Abbott is in charge of um, some sort of estimates committee or something like that and explaining away what happened with Treadstone. And then the Bourne storyline goes off to find Marie, I think in Greece. I'm pretty sure it's in Greece. So they separate again. So the Bourne identity is a good story to use as an example of when to give the audience information and how much to give them in each sequence. Look at where the Treadstone and Bourne storylines intersect. So the first one is with the assassin, the first assassin in sequence three, and then at the end of act two in sequence six, which is when Bourne encounters and kills the professor. And this is the point where Bourne must change his strategy or he chooses to change his strategy. He shifts from being the hunted to being the hunter. And we're not surprised by this because he says as much to Marie when she finds him looking at Eamon's children during the night. Now there are three assassins, Zorn in Paris, the professor at the farmhouse and Castel at the Treadstone house. They appear at very strategic points in the film. Zorn is Bourne's first contact with Treadstone. This is where Bourne knows he's being hunted and he knows what those who are hunting him are willing to do, and that's kill him. The meeting with Zorn also sets up all the pieces falling into place when Bourne realises that he's an assassin, which is at the end of sequence five. While he might not know who he is or how he got to be in this position, 
he now understands what he was. So I looked at the timings in the movie as well when I was watching and I was breaking the story down into sequences. So very roughly, each sequence ends at a 15 at the 15 minute mark with the exception of sequence eight, which ends around the 10 minute mark and everything is wrapped up and the two storylines have gone their separate ways again right at the end of the story and then there's about five minutes left over for the credits. So once I broke this story into sequences, I really started to understand how it was working and where Tootsie used farce, the born identity used dramatic irony to create tension. Thematically, dramatic irony is a great device choice for an action chase person against the state genre story. If you are looking for a good place to start your study of sequences and look at how to apply them in your story, I really recommend The Born Identity. Each sequence is clear, the single central action for each sequence is clear, and Born's change of strategy in order to deal with Treadstone is in the right place and drives home the ending of the movie. So I could talk more about it, but I wanted to leave you with useful highlights. So Valerie, I know that's very quick, but um, I thought it was a pretty good way to start um, an action story example of how to break down into sequences. Did you have anything you wanted to add? The thing that I like most about this whole study of sequences is that it helps us break our stories down into more manageable pieces. Now, the book that you mentioned last week, Screenwriting the Sequence Approach, I looked that up after our recording last week, and I have ordered it, but, you know, because of where I live in the world, (laughs) things take a while to get here. So I might not get it until we finished recording all the episodes this season. But the free preview, if anyone wants to go check it out on Amazon, the free preview gives a high level overview of what these eight sequences are. And it's pretty interesting information, actually. I'm curious to know more about it. All righty. Now, this season I am discussing beginnings and endings. So let me give you a quick overview of uh, the theory that I mentioned last week, just to reorient you. So last week I explained that a story is about how one thing changes. The beginning and the end show that thing at its two extremes, before the change and after it. So in the born identity, what is it that changes and how does the beginning and the ending show the two extremes? Well, as the title suggests, this movie is about identity. (laughs) Jason doesn't know who he is at the beginning, but by the end, he does know who he is. That's the central dramatic question for the movie, right? Who is this guy? And the central dramatic question is the big question of the story that your reader will keep reading to find out the answer to. So for the born identity, what we're wondering is who is this guy? And by the end, we know that his name is Jason Bourne and that he's a professional assassin working for the CIA. Now, it's very easy to stop the analysis there. And for this kind of a story, whether we think it's an action story or a thriller, that would be okay. If that's as far as we want to go when we're writing, the reader would be happy with that. 
you know, as long as the action scenes deliver, of course. However, there's more to it than that. I think this film is suggesting that we get to choose our own identity. That identity isn't simply a matter of our name, rank, and serial number. It's not our job or any other superficial signifier. Our identity is who we are on the inside, and we have the opportunity to choose whomever we want to be. In the before state, Jason is a highly trained assassin. But in the after state, he is a man in love who is choosing a quiet, peaceful life with the woman he loves. He's chosen to cast off the violence in favor of peace. In the beginning, Jason is desperately searching for someone on the outside to tell him who he is. He's desperate to know his name, where he lives, what he does for a living, all that sort of stuff. He wants documents and any other tangible evidence to prove to him who he is. Now, in the end, he has cast all of that aside. He shows up at Marie's, and yes, I think it's Greece too. Actually, that was my feeling of the place. Not that I've been to Greece, but it looks like Greece. So he shows up at Marie's little store there with nothing more on him than he had at the beginning of the film. And by nothing, I mean he's got no material possessions with him. She jokingly asks if he has ID, and he shrugs and says, eh, not really. That stuff isn't of interest to him anymore because he understands that that's not the thing that dictates his identity. And in the beginning of the movie, that was the, he was totally fixated on it. So the beginning hook is 27 minutes and the ending payoff is 28 minutes. And again, this is not an accident. It's by design. And in case you're thinking that this is something that films do, but that novels do not do, think again. Don't take my word for it. Go study novels that have really resonated with readers. Ideally, a novel that readers have loved for a little while now, something, you know, perhaps like The Shining or Gone Girl or The Notebook, that caliber of storytelling, that caliber of staying power, and do the analysis yourself. Put a post-it note in the book at each act break, and nine times out of ten, I promise you, you're going to find that the beginning and the end are about the same length. And you'll also find that halfway through the book, something significant happens that propels the story forward in a big way. And that thing is called the midpoint shift. And I'll talk more about that next season. Now, I find all this stuff fascinating. Uh, Melanie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that before I go on? No, but I uh, just one thing. Sorry, I should say yes, not no. <laughs> one thing. Um, I agree with you. Like in Tootsie last week and in The Born Identity this week, the beginning and the, the beginning hooks and the ending pay off. So Act 1 and Act 3 are very balanced um, in terms of their time and how they've broken up their sequences. So I, I think that's we're coming to similar conclusions but using slightly different ways. And I think that's good. I think that shows why we've enjoyed these stories so much and why they've been such good examples um, for our beginning um, episodes for this season. And it just goes to show that there aren't 
an infinite number of storytelling principles. There's just different ways of attacking a set number of principles. So that's the good news. There's a finite number of storytelling principles to learn. Woohoo. Okay. So <laughs> now as cool as all this beginning and ending stuff uh, is, there's actually more to it than what I've talked about so far. There's a concept that Stephen Pressfield calls the in and the out. Now, a couple of years ago, he bundled his blog posts into little booklets called jabs. And I don't even know if you can get them anymore, to be honest, but you can certainly get his blog, Writing Wednesdays. Go to stephenpressfield.com. A lot of really good articles there. So what I'm about to talk about comes from jab number 15, which is called Ins and Outs, Thoughts on the Opening and Closing Images in Movies and Fiction. Now, there are three points that Pressfield talks about and three points that he says we need to remember. And they are, one, the opening and closing images of our story should look as alike as reasonably possible. Point number two, but at the same time, the out should be as far away as we can make it in emotional and narrative terms from the in. And three, both the in and the out must be on theme. Now, Stephen Pressfield is talking about the opening scene only and the closing scene only. He's not talking about the whole act, just the opening scene and the closing scene. With movies, there's a repetition of visual images because, of course, film is a visual medium. Sometimes the opening scene is actually repeated at the end, but with a different outcome. Now, novels can also have an opening image that is repeated at the end, either literally or in some variation. However, books can also start and end with a mood, a voice, an interior monologue, a philosophical idea or statement, those kinds of things. I'm hoping you're still with me here. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all this, here's the bottom line for you to remember. Films tend to use more literal or visual repeats. Novels can do that too, but they tend towards some kind of non-tangible repetition. This is a general guideline. There absolutely are exceptions, but you know, this is as good a place as any to begin the study. Alrighty. So what's the in and the out of the born identity? Well, let's start with the in. The story begins on a dark and stormy night. Filmmakers do this all of the time, but I'm telling you, a novelist cannot get away with it. So don't even bother. <laughs> the waves are high, the wind is high, the boat is rocking, and Jason is just floating out there in all this tumultuous water. The sea is a physical manifestation of Jason Bourne's emotion. It's a reflection of his emotional state of mind. It's a way to make the internal external. Novelists can go inside characters' heads, but films can't. So one of the ways they convey how a character is feeling is through using this kind of image. Exactly the same thing happened in The Matrix, by the way. Alrighty. In the beginning of The Born Identity, we're out to sea. Jason is untethered. He's floating aimlessly on a sea of emotion. It's cold and dark because he is cold and dark. He's an assassin who has just failed a mission. Why did he fail? 
because his emotion got in the way. He saw Wombosi's little boy and it stopped him in his tracks. That's his limit, right? That's the line he will not cross. He will not allow children to be harmed. So it's like in that moment, Bourne's emotional dam broke. And now his emotions are flooding out of him in a rush. And his emotions, which he has obviously repressed for a long time, are now swirling and churning just like the sea. And just like the sea, this rush of confused emotion is going to kill him if he doesn't get help. Of note here is that the whole film is cold and dark. It's only at the very end that we see any light and warmth, and that brings me to the out. Alrighty, so the out is um, this. Born is in a warm, bright, welcoming seaside location that we both think is Greece. He's with the woman he loves. The camera pans out from the land to the sea. This time, Jason stays on land because he's grounded. He's no longer floating aimlessly. And the water, you'll notice, is calm and serene. Now, it isn't totally flat. There are still waves in it because Bourne is still feeling emotion. His ordeal has not left him as an emotional automaton. I mean, that's the way he was when he was an assassin, right? Completely shut down emotionally, presumably. To be, I mean, you'd have to be, wouldn't you, to be an assassin? I don't know. Instead, here in the ending scene, we see that there are waves on the the ocean, but they're small and they're gentle and they're kind of lapping kind of waves. When they crash on shore, it's with this picturesque white foam. And if you've ever spent any time sitting by the sea and listening to this kind of wave crashing on shore, whether it, it comes in on a beach or over rocks, you'll know that it has a very calming and almost a meditative effect. It's very peaceful. So the film uses the literal repetition of water and being at sea or going back out into sea. But it's also a repetition of the theme and the question that this story explores, which is, what is identity? No. Oh, wow. That is actually your take on that, Valerie, is not what I was expecting this week, but it's a really valid point. And the use of the symbols in the water is, um, so I suppose I wasn't conscious of it, but that's a all of that was really good in terms of the beginning and the ending and a good way to analyse and represent, like you said, that internal state and how it manifests in an external way. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so that begs the question, what were you expecting? Ah, well, I was expecting more of a breakdown of how things mirrored. So last week we could see that, I think, for quite clearly that, the steps into the story were similar to the steps out of the story in terms of Michael's arc, whereas this story didn't have that, you know, the beginning reflected um, in the ending in the same actions but with a different uh, emotional point of view from the protagonist. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there, that... Yeah, I, and I hadn't thought about the born identity in terms of the, the weather being the key to how he's interpreting or where he gets to a place where he's now comfortable with his new identity. So, yeah, 
I, I just wasn't expecting that. That's really interesting and great. Well, that speaks to the way that these storytelling principles can be interpreted and imagined in the hands of different creators. And that's what I like so much about these storytelling principles. I mean, sure, we have to start somewhere when we're learning them. So finding straight up examples of something just makes it easier to understand. But then when we start to apply them to a whole bunch of different types of movies and, and novels, you know, applying to genre widely and to different mediums too, actually helps. We get to see all the interpretations of these principles. So that's why stories don't have a formula, but they do have a form and it's up to the creator, the, the writer. This is, this is the real meat and potatoes of our jobs going into our imagination and imagining and interpreting these principles in new and different and innovative ways. Anyway, what, what is today's action step, Melanie? Right. So today's action step is, for me, is to pick an action movie and see if you can identify the three act, eight sequence breaks. Listen for the music and watch the clock to see if the breaks are what you'd expect them to be and where you'd expect them to be. So this will start to give you a feel for the pacing of the story and the build towards the climactic points. Alrighty, well that wraps it up for this week. Now, next week we do have a bit of a programming change. We had said that we would study Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, uh, but because it's such a new film, it isn't available in Australia yet, and we hadn't realized that when we announced that we would do it. So, for next week we've chosen another of Emma Thompson's movies, Sense and Sensibility. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And God help me, you can now also find me on TikTok at Valerie Francis author. If you'd like to find out more about Melanie, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit her on Facebook at Melanie Hill author. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.